the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Praise to the God who reigns above. The Gospel of Luke is the collection of eyewitness testimonies that speak of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Up to chapter 19, we have seen Jesus warn the people about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Many people turned away from their godless living, forsaking all to follow Jesus. He taught them about God's kingdom and what life in that kingdom would look like on earth. All people were curious about Jesus and the wonderful, miraculous things he did. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. The last thing Jesus said that we covered in Luke 19 was in verse 10, where Jesus explained that the reason he came was to rescue lost people, came to seek and to save that which was lost, came to rescue people like Zacchaeus. But that is a vastly different thing than what everyone expects or wants him to do. They want a king, and they want the kingdom benefits now. And you know, that's not too different than how people feel today. Is God real? Then why doesn't he fix this mess? Is God good? Then why is there so much pain and sorrow? And when Jesus hears people buzzing about this topic, and because the cross is so close, he decides to explain God's plan for the kingdom to them, God's big picture. So chapter 19, verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spoke a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Heard what things? Well, remember Zacchaeus, he made that confession of faith and confession of his wrongdoing. He displayed his repentance. Jesus proclaimed his salvation and then explained what his mission was. We're still right there by the road in Jericho, right by that tree that Zacchaeus had climbed. And as he declares these things and they hear these things, people began to murmur. They began to talk about and say, is this it then? Is the kingdom right around the corner? When Jesus heard them kind of saying these things, he added or he proceeded to tell a parable. Why does Jesus feel the need to say something else to this crowd? I mean, Zacchaeus' story, we don't usually think of it as bigger than just Zacchaeus getting saved. But see, Jesus does for two reasons. The story continues because, like I said earlier, the cross was so close. He is literally just a week and a half or so outside of the cross. So it's very close. But secondly, Jesus, (laughs) he knew no one listened to him when he spoke plainly of his purpose. When he just came out and said, this is why I'm here, everyone ignored him. (laughs) They didn't listen. It didn't matter if he pulled the disciples aside. Guys, let me tell you the plan. They just didn't listen. They had their own ideas of God's plan for the kingdom. 
And so with the cross so close, Jesus decides to bypass the refusal to listen by sharing God's plan through a parable. Parable, of course, is a short story with a symbolic meaning. It generally conveys one point or one truth. They're not meant to teach doctrine. We have to be very careful with that. They're meant to teach one point. And we see here some clues as to what Jesus is trying to accomplish. He speaks the parable because he was close to Jerusalem and because they thought, they presumed, they supposed that the kingdom of God should or literally is about to suddenly just come onto the scene. He's going to go to Jerusalem and blammo, the kingdom's going to fall down like a city from heaven. I bring this up because this parable will seem very similar to another parable, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. But they are not the same parable. The timing is different. Matthew 25 is written on the Mount of Olives. It's the Olivet Discourse. This is nowhere near the Mount of Olives. The story has different elements to it, very different elements to it. And the lesson is vastly different. See, this parable is designed to teach us that God's kingdom was not about to suddenly show up for all to see in Christ's first coming, to correct these rumblings in the crowd and to prepare their hearts for the cross. So verse 12 tells us, he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, occupy till I come. So here we meet this nobleman, this individual, and his situation is, is he has been promised to be king of the region that he's now just a nobleman in. The word to receive a kingdom means to receive from someone else the authority to reign as a king. So this is a man who already has high status in his society, but the plan is to go away, to raise his status to a higher level so that when he come back, comes back, he will be the king. This is a familiar concept to his listeners. Uh, this happened when Herod Archelaus, one of Herod the Great's children, one of his sons, went to Rome to receive authority to rule over the region of Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. He was already a tetrarch when Herod the Great died. They split up his kingdom into four or five different quadrants. And he was one of them, a tetrarch, which means it's part of that one of those groups that ruled over these quadrants. But he wasn't happy with that. He wanted the title of king. And so he traveled to Rome. And this would be very familiar to the inhabitants of Jericho because Herod Archelaus' palace was right there in Jericho. They could probably see it from where Jesus was teaching. So this would be a scenario everyone is familiar with, a history story in a sense. Now, in preparation for this nobleman's long trip, he decides to make sure things will go well here while he's gone. So he called his 10 servants and delivered unto them 10 pounds and said unto them, occupy till I come. The pound is the Roman mina. It's worth about 100 drachmas or in our money, about 20 bucks. He gives each one of them 20 bucks. 10 servants, 10 pounds, so each get 20 bucks. And he says to him, occupy until I come, till I return. The word occupy means to do business, usually by trading. In other words, take this capital investment I'm giving you and turn it into something more. By accepting this money, these guys assume the responsibility to put his money to work so things don't break down while he's away. Doing so that they take the money shows that they're loyal to him and they want him to prosper. Unfortunately, not everyone in this region felt that way about this nobleman. For, it says in verse 14, but his citizens, and the word actually means fellow citizens, maybe he's not a king yet, he's just a nobleman, but his fellow citizens, it says, as soon-to-be subjects, 
hated him. The word means that they strongly disliked him with the implication of aversion and hostility. Nobody wanted to be around him. People, if they saw him, they wanted to do him harm. So they follow up on that and they send a message after him, an ambassador to represent their perspective, saying, the message he would give is, we will not have this man to reign over us. Again, this is a familiar story to the people he's talking to, because this is exactly what the Jews did with Archelaus. When he went off to Rome to go get a kingdom, they sent a delegation to protest it, to say, this guy's not fit to be our king. We don't want a king. So as Jesus is telling this story, immediately people's ears are perking up and going, hey, I know this story, Archelaus' story. They loved this story. And they thought, this will be great. Hashtag popcorn. (laughs) Why did they love this story? Because Archelaus' request was denied when they made their protest. It was a small victory for the Jews in that day, but it was one they held on to. But here, the tale suddenly takes a turn when we get to verse 15. This man does become king. And when he returns, he decides to settle up both with his fellow citizens and his servants. We start with his servants. And it came to pass, verse 15, that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, despite the protest, he still received the authority to reign. When he got back, he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So he wants to know the financial state of affairs. I gave each of you 20 bucks. How much money did you make for me while I was gone? So in verse 16, then came the first servant saying, Lord, your pound has gained 10 pounds. And he said unto him, nobleman who's now a king, well, thou good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over 10 cities. The guy says, I took the 20 bucks you gave me and I gained it. The word means to earn more by working or trading. We don't know which it was, but whatever he did, he worked hard and he turned it into 10 pounds, turned it into 200 bucks. So in a thousand percent profit. So as you can imagine, his boss says to him, well, which actually is well done, thou good servant. The phrase good servant means one who has performed an expected function in a fully satisfactory way. You couldn't have done any better. You did everything I'd hoped you'd do with the money I gave to you. Now, because you've been faithful in a very little, here's what I'm gonna do for you. So how was this guy, how did he perform his expected function in a fully satisfactory manner? He was faithful, dependable, trustworthy, reliable in a very little thing. That's what the word there, it means an insignificant thing, a least important thing. They hadn't been entrusted with his entire estate, just 20 bucks. But this servant had shown himself reliable with that small thing. And as a result, he gets a massive reward. Have thou authority over 10 cities. Have the right to rule, the jurisdiction, the charge of 10 cities. Scripture does teach us that believers will rule and reign with Christ when he returns, set up his kingdom. We will not do that because we have any innate authority. Jesus gives us the authority that he earned with his faithfulness on the earth. But does this mean that where we govern and what we govern in Jesus' kingdom is relative to our faithfulness in this life? 
we have to be really careful. Remember I said there's one main lesson of a, pro- of a parable. So we have to be really careful not to lose sight of the main meaning of the parable, which is not this. We can't make it teach something it doesn't. But it's possible that this is true, that where we govern and what we govern in Jesus' kingdom will be relative to our faithfulness in this life. We read in our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, that it says that one plants, one waters. We may have different jobs, but every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's what it says. Don't get to ride on the coattails of anyone else. God's given you a specific calling in life, and that's what your reward will be based on, faithfulness to that. We read in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, that Jesus, one of his last things he says to John is he says, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to every man according to his work. There is this idea, scripture does seem, scripture does seem to indicate that at least part of our Bema Seat rewards will be experienced in the millennial kingdom, ruling and reigning with Christ because he brings it with him. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, 58 urges us to be faithful in this life. Therefore, my beloved brethren, what does it say? Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, the work he's given to you, knowing that your labor is not in vain, right? We get to the next servant. He comes up and he said, second came saying, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds. So he didn't gain, turned it into a hundred bucks. And he, the king who was a nobleman, said likewise to him, be thou over, also over five cities. So he gets a different reward. He only got 10 pounds, five pounds. So he only gets to rule over five cities. So both the servants' rewards were proportional to what they gained. Now, that seems to correspond to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, right? Every man will receive his reward according to his own labor. Does that mean that the good rewards will only go to people like the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham? No, not, not at all. Paul says each person's reward isn't based on their production. He doesn't say that, but their labor, your faithfulness. All of us have a different calling from God. So the measurement of success isn't by how many pounds you end up with, but how faithful you labored with what God gave you. Now in this instance, the servants were given the same amount, right? Same amount. The same calling. We see that one worked harder than the other because the master doesn't say to the second servant, well done, good faithful servant. He doesn't say that to him. The second servant didn't perform his expected function in a fully satisfactory way. He was partially faithful. And so his reward was smaller. Now, being promoted to rule over five cities when you were previously a slave is a pretty big upgrade in my opinion. Don't you think? Don't get discouraged if you failed in the past. Be faithful moving forward. Because God's grace even if you're not 100% faithful, is bigger than you can imagine. There's a passage in Jeremiah talks about Jeremiah being so frustrated with his people and he says, God, I'm just done. Just get them. I'm tired of how they treat me. I'm tired of, I'm tired of all the troubles I'm going through. I'm done. 
And the Lord says, I'll deal with them. But Jeremiah, if you want to be like me, you need to learn to extract the precious from the vile. And so if you've constructed some wood hand stubble, there's still time to make some gold, silver, and that's something precious for the Lord. He's not going to look at the wood and the hay and the stubble and give you no reward. He'll be able to extract the precious from the vile. So if you've failed in the past, then be faithful moving forward. If you failed miserably, (laughs) then just make a fresh start. Now you say, that sounds great, Pastor Will, but you don't know how much I've messed up. How do you know that God's grace is big enough to still bless me? I know that because turning $20 into $200 doesn't merit ruling a city. In fact, couldn't even buy you a village. Doesn't even probably merit getting a promotion if you do that at your job. It usually just means you get to keep your job. But see, that's because we, in the way we do stuff in life, We don't give promotions based on grace, do we? We give promotions based on merit. But Jesus does give promotions based on his grace. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that he'll be showing us his kindness for all eternity. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that we would know the unsearchable riches of Christ. What are the unsearchable riches? That we would know the height, the length, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. God's grace can't measure it. See, none of us earn God's rewards. They're just more gifts of his grace. Far above what our faithfulness could ever merit. God will always give us far more than we've earned by faithfulness or doing anything the right way because it's all grace. If you've been faithful, stay the course. If you slacked off, then repent. If you failed miserably, then make a fresh start because either way, if you're faithful moving forward, watch what God and his goodness and grace will do. What about the rest of the servants? We just got to two. What about the other eight guys? Well, we don't find out about seven of them, but we do find out one other servant's story. Look at verse 20. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, check this out. Look at this. Here's your pound, just like you gave it to me, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. Now, a napkin is a scarf that you'd usually use to wipe off your sweat. You know, you'd carry it around when you're working wipe off your sweat. Sometimes they would turn them into, they'd wet them in hot days and they'd put them on the back of their neck to keep them from getting sunburned and to keep, keep themselves cool. But the idea is always associated with work, okay? So this guy took his work scarf, he bundled up the pound, the mina, and he laid it up, which means to store away for safekeeping, tucked it under the mattress. Here it is, Lord, safe and sound. Now, was the nobleman's command to keep the pound safe and sound? The nobleman's command was to do business until I return, right? Well, not only did this servant disobey that command, but he clearly wasn't doing any work since his sweat scarf was available to wrap the pound up in. Why did he choose this disobedient and lazy route? Verse 21, for I feared 
you. It means to be in a constant state of fear. Why was he in a constant state of fear of his master? He says, because you are an austere man, the King James says. The word means harsh, strict, difficult, demanding. How was his master difficult and harsh? Well, he tells us. You take up that which you do not lay down, and you reap that which you did not sow. The word take up means to withdraw money from a bank. You withdraw money from a bank that you did not deposit. In other words, you withdraw money from a bank that doesn't belong to you. It was money someone else earned, money someone else got, worked for. I knew you're a difficult man. I knew that if I worked hard for this money, that you'd take it all from me. I know you reap where you didn't sow. You don't go out and work the fields, but you go and you reap the harvest. This guy was afraid that if he earned extra money, his master wouldn't let him keep any of it. That all this hard work would be for nothing for himself. So rather than deal with that frustration, he figured, I'll disobey my master's command. I'm not going to do anything. I'll just give it back to him when he gets back. Then I won't have to be angry. We read this, and we think, oh, this guy's scared of losing the money. That's not the problem. That's not the problem at all. This was a proud, greedy, lazy servant. You know what his problem was? What's in it for me? And since in his mind, he believed nothing was in it for him, he said, I'm not going to do anything. I deserve better than to give my life away for someone else's profit. Now, does that sound like Jesus' mentality at all? No, in fact, that's the exact opposite of Jesus' mentality. In under two weeks, he was going to go to the cross and give his life a ransom for all of us, right? Not to his own good, I mean, what would Christ gain out of this? He already had everything. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, Jesus doesn't go away to a far country to receive a kingdom. It's already his. He just hasn't taken it yet. So he gains nothing from laying his life down for us. He gave his life away fully and freely for our profit. When we think about these servants, this fits perfectly with the lesson that the kingdom isn't about to show up. The mindset of me, me, me. Jesus is far more like the good faithful servant, isn't he? Who did everything that his father asked him to do. Didn't he perform his task to the full satisfaction of his father? I'm trying to think of Jesus. John 12, 23 answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified, referring to the cross. And so at the end, he says, Father, glorify thy name. Save me from this hour, yet for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Every time the Father spoke from heaven, he said the same exact thing. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. I mean, he is the faithful servant, right? Did everything his dad asked him to do. He's the nobleman that's going to be king. Jesus is the hero in every way of the story. Now, the people's idea of what their hero was supposed to do was something vastly different, and therefore satanic. Look at Luke chapter 4 with me, verses 5 through 7. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, 
in the second temptation, we see this same mentality that the people had offered to him here. Luke 4, 5, and the devil, it says, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said unto him, all this power, this authority, this jurisdiction, this right to rule, will I give to you? You don't have to go into a far country. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give it to you right now. For it is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If you'll therefore worship me, all shall be thine. You don't have to do this for no profit to yourself, Jesus. I'll give you the kingdom now. You get all the profit, all the authority, none of the pain. Same attitude the servant had, right? The wicked one. Same attitude the people have. Jesus, by bringing up this wicked servant, he points out the people's pride, their greed, their spiritual laziness in substituting their plan for God's plan. Their faith isn't in the Lord. It's in themselves and their own ideas. And you can never please God with that mindset. There is a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. We are called to know the person of Jesus, to have an intimate relationship with him, not just head knowledge, but heart wisdom that we are so sure of who he is from his word. We don't have to be left in the dark. We can know God and see him with the eyes of faith. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.